welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm talking to prize-winning author Anthony McGowan. Anthony's first book, Stag Hunt, was published in 2004, and he's since gone on to publish another 50 titles. Whilst his first book was a crime thriller, the majority of his work has been for children and young adults. With a range of styles, Anthony's writing appeals to all. From 2013 to 2019, he published a series of four books, Rock, Pike, Rook and Lark, with publisher Barrington Stoke, who create content for dyslexic and reluctant readers. Rook was shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal in 2018, and Anthony went on to win the medal in 2020 for Lark. Anthony's latest book, I Am the Minotaur, was published in January this year. Anthony, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, it's nice to be here. I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood. You were born in Manchester, spent time in various places up north and ended up in a small town called Sherburn in Elmwood. Mm -hmm. What was life like for you? Well, it was quite a nice place to grow up in because it was reasonably idyllic. It's not like a really beautiful little Yorkshire village. It's a kind of semi-industrial, small town stroke big village. But you only have a short bike ride away from fields and woods. And also when we were there initially, it was expanding. It was kind of growing. It became a little commuter town for Leeds and York. And so there were lots of building sites. And when you're a kid, there is nothing more alluring than a building site, (laughs) especially back in the olden days when health and safety concerns weren't quite so prominent. So our child was spent building dens on building sites. It was great. So both your parents worked for the NHS and you're one of five kids. Mm. So it must have been a pretty chaotic household. Oh, it was. It was a house full of arguments and fights and chaos, but also lots of love. Might talk a bit later on about the quartet involved in the two brothers, Nicky and and Kenny, the Brock, Pike, Rook series. Uh, But their their background, although it's meant to be the same town, same village, uh, was completely different to mine. Mine was, you know, there wasn't much money because of five kids and my parents working for the NHS. But it was a high energy high noise, high love kind of household in which peace and calm were a premium. There wasn't much of that going on. Yeah, I can imagine. Where did you find solace? Was it outside? Was it in books? What did you do if you wanted a bit of you time? Well, I suppose it was, after a while, it was in books. And in particular, the um, in Sherbourne, there was a, and still is, uh, a library, which when I was a small kid, it was like a palace. Uh, had these wonderful polished wooden floors and there was an old-fashioned librarian there with the purple rinse and the pearls who had this deafening shush if anyone made any noise but she's also an amazing person and she kind of nurtured my interest in, in books so that was definitely a refuge that kind of place of calm and of learning outside the house. I've done a lot of these interviews recently and more in this series actually than our first series I'm hearing time and time again people referring to the importance of that library as a child growing up Mm, absolutely our library service has been so crushed and squeezed and wrung dry you know over the past 10 years really it's really heartbreaking you know I've got lots of librarian friends as a children's writer we work a lot with librarians 
and their lives have just been made hell. <laughs> where I live in North London now, both in, in Camden where I am and the I'm very close to Brent. The library service has been absolutely destroyed. It's just tragic. That is a shame. Yeah, and we see in the schools as well. I mean, we're very lucky in the town we're in. We've got a lot of schools and and all of them have got good libraries and Mm. people that are dedicated to them. But it is a constant battle and it's just so important. So it's just great to hear people being so supportive of libraries. What was the first book you really remember reading? My parents were both readers, but it wasn't a house full of books. There just wasn't enough money. And I was trying to feel my way back into my earliest memories of picture books and things. Actually, my dad worked as a medic in Iran after the war. Wow. And uh, he brought back a few Persian books. And so one of the first things I remember doing, actually, is scribbling with a pen in a copy of uh, The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that had beautifully <laughs> illustrations in it, which I scribbled all over. Oh, no. So I must have read all the kind of standard picture books as a child, but I just can't summon them up. The first book I really remember being obsessed with was a book called The Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Feats. As a kind of five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, my obsessions were animals and also war, (laughs) being a horrible little boy. And The Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Feats, I don't think it's published anymore, but it was basically The Guinness Book of Records, but about animals. Uh, And actually, a couple of years ago, I bought a copy off the internet And it's still incredibly fascinating. You know, it's got all the stuff about the biggest man-killing tigers. It's a a tiger that killed 450 people in India. And, you know, gory stories about piranhas and crocodiles. But it's the kind of thing that you can absolutely lose yourself in that world. It's both, both factual, but also kind of weirdly terrifying. And so, you know, all the way, even now, half of what is in my head dates back to my obsessive reading of the Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Feats. And also, although many strands in my complicated and vaguely unsatisfactory career is writing about the natural world and about animals, so it still looms large in my psyche. Those type of books, although like you say, that particular one isn't in print anymore, but like the non-fiction, we see a lot of them large format these days, mm. really beautiful books. Y- yes. So popular. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that book design is definitely one of those areas where the world has got better. Bond books are so beautifully produced, so beautifully illustrated. Whereas, you know, the Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Feats, it's not a great piece of publishing. It's just a pretty standard, cheaply produced hardback with a few black and white photos. Now I'm sure they would do it a lot better with pop-up and all kinds of... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're totally right. It's a massive part of the process, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Making them look really stunning. Oh, yeah. What was school like for you? Well, um, I went to a very nice little small village junior school, which, again, you know, the only word for it would be idyllic. I think there were 40 kids in the whole school. And it was the sort of next village along, a place called Barkston Ash, really beautiful little place. But then there was quite a dramatic change when I went to secondary school. So I went to secondary school in Leeds, getting the bus in. It's like a 45-minute bus ride every day. And just by pure fluke, I kind of ended up going to one of the toughest, roughest comprehensives in the whole of Leeds, a school called Corpus Christi High School, which is in the middle of this huge council estate called the, the Holton Moore Estate, a really tough estate. So all the poor kids from the local estate went there. Plus, if you got expelled from any of the Catholic schools in Leeds, you got expelled to my school. So all the kind of psycho kids from the other schools in Leeds were there as well. And it was quite a violent, dramatic place to go to school. Lots of actual violence, you know, fights every break time. Lots of really hardcore bullying of a kind you, you barely get anymore. And, you know, the teachers back then as well had their own, <laughs> own violent regime as well. That's how they kind of controlled us with corporal punishment. So it was a challenging place, especially for an outsider like me. You know, I was not from the local area. And although my parents are both just nurses, I was a bit posher than the other kids are. And also I quite like learning stuff. So I potentially was in that bullying zone. 
And what lifted me out of it was that I was mainly, I was quite good at sport. And the one thing our school didn't totally suck at was football. We had a really good school football team. I played for the team. And also I was quite big. <laughs> I was uh, about six foot tall when I was, you know, 14. So I think I shrunk a bit, actually. So just so what it meant was that that secondary school experience for me was really unusual in that there was all this madness and chaos kicking off around me. But I didn't get sucked down into it. I kind of floated above it. And actually, I loved that insane, mad, violent school. And it's, you know, it's no surprise, I don't think, that I've gone back to it, to that environment in all of my kind of YA books. As you said earlier on, I've written a bizarre and vast range of books for all ages. But I always, for my core, is that YA teenage readership. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, say that it sounded like it was going to be a prominent influence on the work that you do. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So after school, you went to university, you did an MPhil in philosophy, and then you went on to do a PhD and I love this, a PhD on the history of the concept of beauty. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I suppose that my undergraduate degree was philosophy and politics. I did an, this MPhil at Manchester on the concept of genius. So I was looking for another kind of vague concept. I wanted to write about beauty from a philosophical point of view, but there's been so much written about it. So I then thought I'd write about personal beauty, and that's been written about a lot as well. So what hasn't been written much about is male attractiveness, male beauty, but from a philosophical point of view. And always when you're writing a PhD, you're desperate to find something that's not been done to death. So that was the plough I furrowed. <laughs> I'm impressed. I always thought it would be quite good to do a PhD, but I have no concept of original thoughts. I'm very good at doing things that other people tell me to. But... Yeah, well, I mean, it's actually the easiest and most enjoyable period of my life. Once you find that subject, it's barely work, you know, a couple of hours a day of pondering and then the rest of the time you're free. <laughs> not too shabby. So fast forward to today, you mentioned you live in London with your wife, your two children and your dog. Mm -hmm. You once wrote an article about the relative failure of being married to a superwoman. Uh. Now, uh, given that you're hardly an underachiever, that sounds like as a family, you're pretty hardworking and pretty successful. What's life like for you all? Well, the failure article, it was right at the beginning of my writing career. And I don't even manage to actually dig out the original. I think it was in the Sunday Times and another version of The Guardian anyway, different articles. But back then I was the aspiring writer and my wife who had worked in fashion had an idea for a kind of fashion book. And it was a time when I kept being rejected and her kind of chiclety fashion book, which I helped to write a bit, you know, because she's very, very clever, but she wasn't a novelist then, <laughs> that that instantly got a book deal. And so my wife, the fashion designer was a published writer before her husband me the writer was published <laughs> so that's why that kind of hammered home that sense of failure that I had at the time and you know I managed to claw my way a little bit up that slippery slope since then yeah so for a long time my wife ran this fashion company Paddy Campbell making nice clothes for posh women I suppose is what the company did she was a designer and also ran the company uh, so that's quite an intense life and so I was a home parent I was the one that looked after our kids when they were small mostly but then a few years ago, she closed the company down. It's just too much stress running a big company. So she then did a PhD herself at the LSE. And she's now a lecturer at the LSE. <laughs> so our kind of world sort of changed a bit now. And obviously, we're all at home during the lockdown. So it's, you know, we live in a flat in London. There's four of us here now. My son, who's studying medicine at university, he's back living with us. My daughter's 18. And suddenly, what was quite a big flat now feels like a very small flat with four all big people but you all understand this modern situation it's all of our lives now yeah absolutely it's pretty funny old time hasn't it we're recording this on the 12th of february so we're not actually far off a year mm. from us having all lived with the immediate impact of covid yeah how has it been in terms of you dealing with that from a work standpoint how's that impacted you and also from a personal standpoint yeah well the first sort of part of the lockdown that, that very first lockdown and over the summer was actually 
great. It was, it was nice hanging around the house with the kids and my wife. I think we all quite liked it. Mm-hmm. We almost felt de-stressed by the whole thing. So that was quite pleasant, although I found it almost impossible to do any hard work. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of intellectual energy you need to sit down and hammer away at your keyboard just wasn't there. So I kind of went a little bit of a, a sort of trough work-wise. You know, as it's gone on, even someone like me who, you know, isn't particularly driven in any sense, I've begun to get a bit bored with it all and vaguely, I don't know, somehow mentally worn down. I think we all have that feeling. And then actually, right at the start of this year, I finally got COVID, <laughs> as did well everyone in the household got it, just doing all the being locked down and being fairly cautious. Somehow it wormed its way into our household. And luckily, none of us had it very badly, but it's still not nice. It was like a bad dose of the flu. I was in bed for a week or so. But luckily, my wife got it just after I was getting better a bit so we could keep the household running. So yeah, overall, it was weird. First half of the lockdown, it was almost like a golden time for us. I know other people were suffering in horrible ways, but it was quite pleasant. But now, please, can we have normality back again? Can't I want to go to the pub and, and, and talk nonsense with my pals and, you know, just wander out and ah, anyway. Yeah, hopefully not too much longer at some point. But I mean, talking about the first lockdown, it was very near the beginning of the first lockdown that the winner of the Clip Carnegie mm. medal was announced. And that announcement was that you had won ah, the medal last yep. year. That must have been a crazy thing to happen when so much bonkersness was happening in the world. Yeah, it was extraordinary. The analogy I keep making is it was like I was on the Titanic in the casino and I won the jackpot just as a ship hits the iceberg. <laughs> so it was, a, you know, it was a, a really, a, you know, totally the best moment of my career, but in this time of madness. So, you know, it was utterly joyous and strange. And I suppose they tell you that you've won it about a month before they actually make the announcement. So I, I kind of knew it was happening. But I, I so wanted to make a speech and thank all the people who helped me along the way. As you know, the Carnegie's chosen by librarians. And when you're in the children's book world, those librarians are a big part of your life. Uh, and you genuinely love them. These are people who care so much about children's books and so full of enthusiasm and love. I really wanted to be there. There's normally a big ceremony. I wanted to embrace them all and and kiss, hug the world. But instead, I just did a, had a Zoom chat like this. <laughs> and also, the great thing about the Carnegie is that you get what you win is actually a gold medal, a real medal made of actual gold. And because of the lockdown, they've not been able to get it engraved or cast or whatever they have to do with it. So it's, I don't have it yet. <laughs> so I haven't, you know, almost it doesn't feel quite real. It's like I've gone to the Oscars and just haven't got the actual statue. It's something to look forward to, I suppose. Eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole Carnegie process has started again, so the longest nominations have been already announced and the longest will be shortly coming out. Well, our town is very active in the Carnegie shadowing mm. world, and um, I can tell you that the response to you winning was excellent. They were all really pleased about it. Oh, um, thank you. Let's just talk about that book, because the mm. book that won was Lark. And mm. as I said in the introduction, that was the final book in a quartet of books that you've released over a number of years with Barrington Stoke. Mm-hmm. Where did the idea of those books come from? Well, it, it all began with me um, thinking about my whole career in a way. Because if you read my earlier YA books, and I suppose my adult books as well, they tend to be huge, extravagant, real comedies. My first book's a book called Hellbent, my first YA book, about a teenage boy who dies and goes to hell. It's a kind of retelling of Dante's Inferno, but as gross out comedy for teenagers. But so you get these different kind of layers of philosophy and filth all intermingled. And my second book's called Henry Tumor. It's about a teenage boy who has a 
talking brain tumour, but it's also a retelling of Henry IV Part One by Shakespeare. So they're the kind of books I wrote that are really high energy, full of fizzing with ideas and a lot of body comedy. That was kind of my thing, those two things brought together. But I kind of realised after a while that what I was doing was a lot of showing off. I do love those kind of early books. out there. I think they're funny and they're, they're um, challenging and they're like nothing else. But what they don't particularly try to be is true. That wasn't one of my goals. I was trying to be clever and entertaining and strange and, and challenge the genres. But I thought, could I, I don't know, pare that back a bit, pare back my elaborate metaphors and the parody and the intertextuality that I kind of went in for in those books and just feel my way towards doing something that was real. So rather than being set in a city, the quartet set in this basically Sherbin and Elmet, this small town, big village. And it's about the lives of the central characters and Nicky and Kenny. The, the older brother, Kenny, has moderate learning difficulties. So his younger brother, Nicky, has to be his carer in a sense. And he's got to be his carer because their family situation is so bad at the beginning of the series. Their mother's left home because she couldn't cope. Uh, their father, his way of not coping is to drink too much. and He's got in trouble with the police and lost his job. So at the beginning of the series, at the absolute lowest point, they're living in terrible poverty. They haven't got enough to eat. They're filthy. But at this point, the two boys get mixed up with some older lads who have gone badger baiting. You know, the blood sport where you hunt badgers in the countryside with dogs, dig them out. And the two boys manage to save most of the badgers. And in particular, they save a baby badger, which they take home and they try to look after it. And that their dad hauls himself out of his trough enough to help them with this process. And so looking after the badger helps to heal that family and begins them on that slight upward tick. But they're still very poor. And through the first three books, you see the family getting a little bit more together, but with all the kind of standard problems of teenage life. Until at the point of Lark, they managed to trace their mother. She was in Canada. She'd been trying to find them as well. And the boys go on this walk onto the North Yorkshire Moors to find Larks, to try and partly to take their mind off, off their mother's impending visit. And it descends into a kind of survivalist story. They get stuck in a blizzard. They get lost, take a disastrous shortcut, and it spirals down. <laughs> so I suppose by the time of Lark, I knew that was going to be the last one. And I did want to give it a really big emotional weight and punch and heft. So I, I almost designed it to make people cry at the end. The various buttons <laughs> I knew I could press to get those tears flowing. I think you succeeded. <laughs> We, uh, as part of my job, I'm one of the judges for Carnegie Shadowing. So I got a lot of really lovely uh, reviews about your book from uh, okay. local school children. So it was really great to read their interpretation of your story. Yeah. So I do think that the, the whole shadowing process, which you listeners may not know, that hundreds of schools and book groups around the country, they read all the books on the shortlist and give you amazing feedback about it. That is literally the greatest thing about the Carnegie, that huge community of committed young readers. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's brilliant. So you recently started teaching an MA in creative writing mm. and that all happened during lockdown. Is that correct? Well, I've done a lot of creative writing teaching over the years. So for 10 years, I taught at the publisher Faber and Faber run a Faber Academy. So I've done that. Mm. But this kind of came out of the blue. Yes, I've got a friend who's in charge of the course and someone else dropped out. So I was asked to step in, but that was yeah quite intense, especially given that it's all online now, like all, all university mm. teaching. Uh, so there's the technology to grapple with as well as the the concepts and the responsibility <laughs> and you know as a writer basically you're pretty free most of the time i do more or less whatever i want and suddenly i've got like a job where i've got 
responsibilities, admin to do and marking. <laughs> so it's not why, you know, I'm, I'm too old suddenly to learn how to be responsible. <laughs> You've got to stick to other people's rules now. Mm-hmm. How has the teaching impacted your reading? Well, yeah, I had to, you know, work through the reading list, which were mostly kind of contemporary books that I probably wouldn't have picked, actually. You know, as readers, we get into troughs, don't we? Yeah. You know what sort of thing you like, and you read more stuff like that. And so it was actually good to be wrenched out of that channel and made to read stuff that I probably wouldn't have picked up. What was the last book you read? Well, the last read on the book on the course was Our Endless Numbered Days by Claire Fuller, which was Claire's first novel that came out, I think, 2015, which is a great story. It's about a, a young girl who's taken by her survivalist father uh, away from her mother to live in a cabin in the middle of the German forest to kind of disappear there. So you get a kind of family drama combined with a survivalist kind of, you know, one of those where a big part of the interest is finding out how to skin and cook a squirrel. So they've got to survive in this wilderness for a while, along with a much kind of darker themes because she's only eight when she goes there. And I don't want to kind of give the story away, but just living with her father, it, it becomes this intense psychosexual drama i suppose so i read that also i read the essex serpent for the course by sarah perry uh, which again was a book which i was always resistant to Uh, have have you read that one yeah i have that's interesting why were you resistant to it well it seemed almost too self-consciously writerly i'm making quote marks in the air writerly a project you know her attempts to slightly parody victorian literature her playing with the gothic Mm-hmm. Also, her very self-consciously rich and intricate prose style, that slightly got on my nerves. And also, its fabulous success obviously annoyed me as, as well, because writers <laughs> <laughs> are horribly prone to envy. <laughs> Unless you actually meet the person, you know, then it's all transformed. So I was, a, and you know, I, I didn't totally love it, but by the end of it, I could see it was a serious achievement and a very good, that sounds again slightly sarky. You know, it, it's a fine piece of work, even though it wasn't something I, I would have read otherwise, I don't think. No, and I think you're right. What you said about your work now pushing you in different directions mm. with the books, I find the same. Obviously, a big part of my job is reading books to be able to recommend them to customers, and we have to do that a lot. You haven't found that in that kind of busman's holiday sense that you now hate books because you're surrounded by them all the time? No, the exact opposite. I did worry at one point that was going to happen because I'm a relative newbie to the world of books. I've only been doing it for four years and was doing something very different beforehand. Mm. I always had books as my point of solace, so I was a bit concerned that maybe Mm. it would become a bit tarnished but it really hasn't it just makes me happy i was thinking a while ago that you know, all the way through my life i've wanted more books I, you know i said that my my family background that my parents weren't they were readers uh, but they were always library books but it wasn't a house full of books and i wanted that house full of books i always bought more books than i could possibly read but i did realize a while ago i've now got too many books there's no way <laughs> of them to go i actually don't want any more books <laughs> Yeah, I've dealt with that by moving house a few times. And I've been quite... <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the best way to do it, move house. Do you know what I found? This is a terrible thing for everyone listening to this as a book lover. You love your books like people, but it's weirdly liberating taking that first big box full down to Oxfam. <laughs> you know, all the stuff you know you're not going to read again, all the kind of paperback novels and stuff. There is a kind of weird weight lifted from you when you deliver that parcel of books. So I recommend it. It's so true. So I'm always interested in hearing about a book that changed someone's life. I have a theory that everyone that reads books has that book Mm. and that could be something that impacts them personally or professionally or or indeed both. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is the book? Yeah, there's probably different books at different stages in my life. But the key one for me probably was The Lord of the Rings. So, you know, going back to my little idyllic 
junior school. You know, I think I was known to be a slightly interesting little kid who was obsessed with facts. Um, but I wasn't a reader of fiction at all back then. I had a nature table at my bedroom at home with all my my ladybird books and my observer books of birds and a pheasant's wing and, a, and that, that kind of thing and a, a seahorse shell. Sure. But, but I wasn't really a reader of fiction. And then I don't quite know why, but a teacher gave me, called Miss Marnie, actually spelled Mahoney, um, but Miss Marnie, she pronounced it. She gave me the first volume of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And I didn't know what this thing was. A, it was huge, much bigger than my normal kind of books. I didn't really know what a novel was or what fiction was. I think I was nine. I can never quite remember the exact age. I think I was nine. And it took me at least a year to read it. Mm -hmm. And I gradually understood what fiction was, what a novel was. And then was so lost in that world. And so then between the ages of nine and 14, all I did was read The Lord of the Rings over and over again. And definitely that process completely changed me into being the kind of person that read fiction. And also, I think, into being the kind of person that might one day write it. So that was probably the most important single book in my life. And, you know, I've read it 10 years ago to my children. And I got back in that world again. It's, I don't know, it's obviously there are issues in it. <laughs> um, there aren't many interesting female characters, but it's still, it's beautifully written, beautifully imagined. I even started, for the first few times through, I, I, uh, I'd always skip the songs and the poems. Uh, but this time through, I actually read them and quite enjoyed those too. Isn't it incredible that your teacher chose to give you that book? I wonder if she's realised, I don't know if you've been in touch with her since or whether she realises how much of an impact that had on you. Oh, you know, it's nearly 50 years ago and she was probably in her late 50s then. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I could somehow, you know, when you're a teenager and a young person, you don't look back in that same kind of way. I give anything to go back through time now and and fall on my knees before and, and thank her. Yeah. <laughs> she, she was a because it's a very small school, um, only four teachers in it. And she was a part-time teacher. And her other job was being the housekeeper for the parish priest. So I was also an altar boy back in those days as well. Maybe that's why she gave it to me as a reward or something. But I don't know what she saw in me because I wasn't, as I say, a literary person in, in those days. And it was yeah, transformational. But she must have seen something. Something. So let's now talk about your most recent book, because you've just published your most recent book in January. It's mm. called I Am the Minotaur, mm-hmm. and it was published with OUP. Yeah, it's kind of weird collaboration between OUP and Barrington Stoke. So it looks a bit like a Barrington Stoke book, but a lot of the, the, the actual publishing side was done by OUP. So joint venture. And it's not a light read. It's a <laughs> YA novel that covers issues such as bullying, caregiving, poverty. Where did the idea of that book come from? The origins are slightly odd, I suppose. Because um, the main character, he's called Stinky Mog. That's the name he's given. And when I was at school, I, my name was Mog. Everyone called me Mog, including the school teachers. And I was kind of joking about this on Facebook. And for some reason, one of my writer pals said, uh, just start calling me Stinky Mog. Uh, and then this character began to form in mind. It's not me at all, but this character of Stinky Mog, of a of a kid, and again, at that lowest imaginable point. So I don't know about you, but at my school, there were kids who genuinely stank. You know, there was such poor backgrounds. They just weren't clean. There was something about those stinky kids that was ostracized and separate. They had no friends. And also that you, when you get in that loneliness cycle, you get more and more internal. Your world becomes just you and you try and hide from the rest of the world. That to be noticed or to be seen means persecution. So I wanted that absolutely isolated, lonely character who is also a caregiver. His, his mother has various psychological and, and physical ailments. So he's got to be kind of her caregiver. 
But because he's only a kid, he's not very good at it. But I know there are, I did research around this, there are incredibly heroic, amazing young caregivers who are brilliant. Whereas Stinky Morg, is, he does what he can, but he's not amazing. So his life is really, really dark and lonely and desperate. So I wanted to create that character at the lowest imaginable point, the loneliest character in the world. He's at a school that's, again, not quite like mine. It's quite a good state school, the kind of school that parents move house to get in the catchment area of. Mm-hmm. And so there are various groups and cliques within that. And he's not in it, but there's this kind of golden group of the ones who are both kind of clever and athletic. And he falls in love with one of the girls there, uh, Ari. So it's a kind of love story, his desperate attempt to do something to make her notice him. But it has also got this kind of symbolic structure. So it's called I Am the Minotaur. So he feels like this monster trapped in this in the middle of the labyrinth on his own. And she's Ariadne, the, um, the golden princess. <laughs> it's interesting because when you were talking just then, and actually when I was reading the book as well, you talk about these kids that everyone remembers from school. And that's exactly where your book took me. Mm. Because I remember, it actually sounds like we have very similar childhood, very small primary school. And then, although my state school was not as crazy as yours, mm. it sounds like, but the secondary school was just bigger and more kids around. And I do remember there are a couple of kids, and even to this day, I could tell you their names, which of course I won't, yeah. who clearly now as an adult, you look back on and you think, well, they weren't being looked after. Mm. But you didn't understand that at the time as a child, did you? It was just they were different. And like you say, they were a bit yeah. smelly. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking to think of those children yeah. and what's going on at home. For them. You know, I do look back on those days a lot. And I enjoyed my school days, despite all the violence and chaos and bullying and stuff, because it didn't actually personally affect me. But I remember the kids that it did affect. And literally the biggest regret in my life is that I never quite had the courage to stand up for them. Mm. You know, I suppose I just felt too relieved that it wasn't me yeah. having the shit kicked out of them. And I just didn't quite have that guts to step forward. Uh, you know, one or two kids did that I really remember, but I didn't. And now, um, I suppose, but again, nearly all of my YA books come back and circle around that issue of bullying, which I suppose is my, my way of trying to atone <laughs> for my own cowardice as a teenager. Oh, I think you're just doing what a lot of teenagers did. A lot of your books, not all of them, but you have written quite a number with Barrington Stoke that are, for people that don't know, Barrington Stoke is a fabulous publisher that does books for dyslexic or reluctant readers. Was that a conscious decision for you or did you just kind of fall into that at some point? It was a kind of one of those fortunate accidents in life. So I'd written all my earlier exuberant, elaborate, complicated YA books, plus my adult stuff. And I was just I was at a book award and there was a, another writer there who wrote for Barrington Stoke and her editor was there and they just started talking to me and, you know, sold the idea. Actually, the very first book I wrote for them was a book called The Fall, mm-hmm. which is, if you think that I'm a minotaur is bleak, The Fall is the most depressing book I've ever written or probably read. Uh, you know, there's no light in that, the end of that tunnel. I knew that it was for reluctant readers, so I tried to pare down my style and cut out some of that over-elaboration. But back in those days, Barrington Stoke used to workshop all of their books with school kids, where they take them to schools. So my originally, what I thought was quite a straightforward story, came back covered in blue pencil. All these things, all these metaphors and similes that they just didn't know what they were supposed to mean. And the one that stuck in my head was, um, I described like a, a traveller's horse with tattered flares, that kind of flared effect you get on the bottom of the horse's legs. You may be more of a horsey person than I am. Yeah. But a lot of the kids apparently thought that I was talking about the horse was actually wearing trousers. <laughs> so even that level of metaphor, you can't assume that the readers will understand. Mm-hmm. So I went back and rethought about it and further pared down my language and also thought about what the readers really care about or, or, or want to read for, which is characters and story. 
And so that's what I focused on. And I think that that pairing down and pairing back process, it definitely made me a better writer. You know, I think that Lark, which is a very simple book, is probably the best thing I've ever written. Mm -hmm. And I hope to carry on that simplicity, but also that power in I'm a Minotaur. So that's out at the moment. Obviously, it's been out for just under a month when we're recording this. Have you got plans for other books this year? Are you working on something new at the moment? Well, I've recently finished a very different kind of a book. It's called The Dogs of the Deadlands. Well, that's its working title. I've just got a book deal for that, which I can't announce yet. It's going to be announced quite shortly. And that couldn't be more different. It's kind of epic kind of animal adventure story. It's set in the area around Chernobyl, which after the accident, the whole area was abandoned and it's been rewilded. Yeah. And so now it's, it's full of bears and wolves and lynx and bison. But also one of the things that happened was that the people who were evacuated from Pripyat, the local town, they weren't allowed to take their pets with them. Mm-hmm. So they were all abandoned. And then the army came, but they were told they'd be able to come back in three days and take them away. But that never happened. And the army did come in and try and kill all of the dogs and cats, but a lot escaped. So you had these kind of, these feral dogs as well. And the story is kind of about the, some feral dogs interacting with the wolves in the area around Pripyat. So it's a kind of combination of the Call of the Wild, which I read last year, a fantastically powerful book, Jack London, and a bit of Wardship Down, uh, but also kind of War and Peace, because it's also the story of the girl whose pet dog at the beginning she has to abandon. So it's kind of, again, quite a complicated. It's meant to be epic. It's quite a long book. And there's episodes that take place in the Second World War, kind of looking back, so it's quite intricate, quite complicated. It took me a long time to write and was very difficult mm-hmm. to write. You know, Lark took me two or three weeks to write. Um, I'm a minotaur, probably took me three or four months, but this has taken me a, well, two years, I suppose. Goodness. So yeah, it's a very different kind of a book. It sounds amazing. I think there's been a real renewed interest in Chernobyl since the uh, the TV show, um, yeah. which is it's just, it's, it's so interesting that something like that can really just focus people's minds on something that obviously people had known about but I don't think people had registered just how terrible it was yeah it was kind of annoying that the Chernobyl program because I'd already written half the book and yeah I was writing about the stuff that was featured in the tv series as well um so it's good that it generated interest about it but the timing felt a little bit awry from my point of view (laughs) you were there first yeah well it sounds brilliant so I can't wait to see that We've been chatting for a while and I just can't believe I always say this at the end of these episodes that time just goes so quickly. Mm. But I've really enjoyed chatting to you today. So thank you so much for coming on. I really look forward to seeing your new book and seeing the announcement when it comes out. And we will be sure to be getting copies of I'm the Minotaur into anybody's hands that is interested. So thank you so much for joining me and best of luck for the rest of this year. Thank you, Sarah. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Most Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.